Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If you have a negative experience growing up, oftentimes when you have a kid of your own, you want to fix that experience so that your kid doesn't have to go through it, right? Well, Sarah Polly, she was a child actor. It was not necessarily a positive experience for her. And check this out. Her kids acted in her film, Women Talking. So what does she do on set to make sure that her kids don't go through what she went through? And did she kind of overdo it sometimes? Sarah Polly will be here to talk about that coming up. Plus, it's one thing to write about a breakup or falling in love. It's another thing to write about um, a one-sided love affair, like being obsessed with someone and they don't care about you. Kaylee Cardinal is a Canadian songwriter. She wrote a great song about that, and she'll be here to tell you all about it. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. All right. It is uh, It is nice to be back. Nice to be back in the chair again, sitting here at the table. Thanks so much to Talia Schlanger for sitting in for me uh, for the past few weeks while I was away. It is the summer. So that means we're looking back at some of our favorite conversations over the past year here on Q. This is definitely one of them. It's our conversation with Sarah Polly, which took place just weeks before she took home the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for her film, Women Talking. Now, if you're not as familiar with Sarah, I think it's fair to say, Canadian icon. She was a a child actor. She was in the show called Road to Avonlea, which is this Canadian classic. And I've learned since this interview aired that a lot of people were kids when they watched Sarah as a kid on Road to Avonlea and felt like they grew up with her. As she was a teenager, they were teenagers. So she's very important to a lot of Canadians. And as I mentioned, she was in to talk about her brilliant film, Women Talking, which is an adaptation of a book by Miriam Taves. It's about a group of women living in a cloistered religious community who, after these devastating assaults, have to decide whether they will fight, leave their community, the only one they've ever known, or do nothing at all. It's a really powerful film, and we talk about it, about adapting the book, about what she wanted to make sure she got right. I think it led to a pretty nuanced conversation about whether or not people can actually be better. But right before we taped our interview, Sarah and Women Talking won Best Ensemble Cast from the Boston Society of Film Critics Awards. But it was a tie with the cast of Jackass. So I started by asking Sarah what she made of that. Take a listen. I was thrilled. I felt like it gave our film some kind of credibility with regular audiences. No, I do feel like, um, I don't know, I thought it was delightful. I thought it was a delightful um, reveal to have those two casts. And our cast really wants to go out for dinner now with the Jackass Forever team. And they haven't responded. And I think that's because they know secretly deep down in their hearts that we're more fun than than, than they are. And they don't want to come to terms with that. I think they know that you can do the stunts better than they can? Everything. <laughs> Certainly the jokes. Have w- you seen women talking? I, yeah, I wonder. Well, yeah, I, I wonder how 
many people have seen both Jackass Forever and Women Talking. I'm the kind of person who would like I spent last night watching Billy Madison for the 800th time. I am Shape I am the better. target audience for that pairing. Conditioner is better. Yeah. <laughs> I have I've, I have seen <laughs> That was really good evidence and recall. Thank you very much. I have seen both Jackass Forever and Women Talking. Nice. Yeah, there I am you the go. One. So you I'm, are. I am it's the you one. and me. And I love, I'm not going to lie to you, I loved them both. Nice. I Equally. loved them both. Kind. And for the same reasons. <laughs> I mean, we could do that. I probably could do that. I think you could do I it. I could do that, but why, why, why do it? <laughs> um, how was working with an ensemble on this? That would, It did make me, th- when I saw the best ensemble thing, and I, I was thinking about the film, it's a lot of actors. It's, yeah. just, it's a lot of actors in the same scene for a long time, and quite an ensemble in it. How, how was mm-hmm. that for you? It was amazing because I, I got to cast the people who are, in my mind, the best actors working in the world. And um, and not just the best actors in the world, but they, they created such an amazing community with each other. And it was intimidating at first, but that really quickly faded just into gratitude for getting to work with, with this group of people. How do you mean they created a community with one another? Everyone was kind of there to support everyone else. And it started to feel like... It was the summer where the Canadian women's soccer team um, was really, you know, in the news a lot. And we were watching all of these clips of them jumping up and down and holding each other up, you know, after they scored goals. Julia Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! That's what it felt like being on set. Someone would give you know, an amazing monologue and it'd be a great take and everyone would just rush at them and hug them and cry. And it just felt like everyone was sort of cheering for everyone else and everyone was giving their performance full tilt, full emotional levels for everyone else's off camera. And sometimes people would be off camera for three and four days at a time before we ever got around to them because the scenes were so long. There are so many characters. So it took a kind of egolessness and a sense of community building to make this film. And so we I, I kept sending around these montages of the Canadian women's soccer team because it would just remind me so much of this sense of people would score a goal and everyone would be part of it and everyone would feel um, that, you know, they were winning as a, as a team. Is that uh, rare? Yeah. It's really rare, sadly. Um, I mean, first of all, it's rare just to have a this big a cast where people have this many people have important roles. So the structure of itself itself was rare. Um, but I think that sense of camaraderie and that sense of people being willing to make space and, and treating other people's victories as their own um, is rare. And and we were really conscious when we were putting together this team of casting people, not just for their ability to play the part, but also for their ability to have those kinds of relationships where they could step back and make space. I mean, that's lovely. I, 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 I'm, I've never acted, really. I acted once. Do you want to try now? Do you want me to give me an exercise? Am I not? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you, really? <laughs> um, but I did act this year. Oh. And I found out, I acted in a thing this year. I played myself. Were you good as yourself, or would you have preferred to be played by somebody else? I thought I'd be better, to be candid. I thought okay. I'd be better. I right. think they were like, just be yourself. You're, you're, you're Tom, host a queue. And I was like, hi, I'm, t-, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> but I, I didn't know that. I can't believe I'm saying this to you. For yeah. people, people who don't know this, because I didn't yeah. know this. You're in a scene, me and Sarah are in a scene together. They shot the scene in the wide and me and Sarah mm-hmm. are talking to one another. And then they zoom in on Sarah and I'm acting with Sarah off screen. And I said to the person, I said, 
do I still have like really what like what do I do here? Do I just read the lines or do I just and mm. they said the great ones, the generous ones are the ones who still give it their all even when they're not on screen. And Correct. that's what came to mind when you said that these yeah. actors, your your Francis McDormand's, your Rooney Maris, yeah. these like high level actors, yeah. they there's something to that, right? Yeah, and and in the case of this film, it was a bit of a strange creature because because we had these scenes that sometimes last ten and fifteen minutes, and there are these wild debates, and people are incredibly emotional and angry and laughing uncontrollably, and so much happens in these very long scenes. And we had 12 people sometimes to shoot. It would sometimes take us three to four days to get around the room and finish the scene. So by the time, you know, Claire or Jesse or Rooney had done, or Sheila McCarthy or Judith Ivey had done their most difficult moments, some of which were monologues that went on for long pages, they would have done it 120 times, literally. I mean, we once counted Claire did a monologue. 120 times, full tilt, crying, screaming. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and some of us are dead. Nobody ever gave less when they were off camera. I think great actors... Um, it, for the most part, will know they need to do that. But they're not usually, you don't usually have to do it for that long and that many takes because usually there's a scene with two or three people, not 12. Yeah. So the kind of stamina and technical ability and endurance this required was really abnormal. And it would be abnormal to find 12 people who would be both willing and capable of giving everything they had for every single take for everybody else. It, it speaks to me of like I've read a lot about the environment you tried to create on on the set, right? Like that, it speaks to me of that environment you mm -hmm. wanted to create one that was trusting, that was collective. Yeah, I mean that was the intention. I think um, we had a lot of focus on making sure it was a good experience for people, that it was a healthy working environment, that our working hours were not as long as usual in the film industry, that people could get home to see their kids at night. Um, we had a rule that if people needed a break or 20 minutes, we would take one no matter what. People very rarely asked for that, but we just wanted to get rid of that emergency room mentality that film sets can have that I think are so unproductive and kind of unhealthy at their core. Um, we had an onset therapist for the scenes that were most difficult um, for people emotionally. She was with us. Her name was Dr. Lori Haskell. She's an amazing uh, clinical psychologist who specializes in memory and what uh, trauma does to the brain and sexual assault. And so she was with us at the beginning in terms of helping us develop tools to deal with stuff that might come up, was there for the actors and the crew when things came up on set, um, and was just a, a resource that was invaluable. So we just tried to put guardrails in place. Um, so I think just trying to create an environment that addressed some of the things that had been difficult for me as an actor and growing up um, was enormously helpful for me personally, but also um, it, it creates a kind of optimism to realize things can mm. be different. And I think the, the guiding principle of this novel yeah. is, you know, thinking about, I don't want to say guiding principle, I don't want to speak for Miriam, but what I took away from it that was important to me was this idea of thinking about what we want to build, not just what we want to tear down and, and what we'd like to see. Yeah. I think another sort of um, mistaken assumption about the book and the film is that it's this very heavy, devastating, difficult material. And it's the background funny. is, it's funny, it's joyful. It's also, it's about creating a better world. Yeah. It's about 
what what could be different and and how capable we are of sitting with each other and coming to a way forward with people we might not agree on every issue with, which is, I think, something that's getting lost in the conversation generally. So um, I find it a tremendously hopeful enterprise. I, I felt the book left me with so many open-ended and exciting questions, and, and that's what we tried to bring into the spirit of the film. How did the book come to you? So somebody at my book club um, took me aside in the kitchen and said, I know what the next film you need to direct is. I just read this book. You're in a book club? Oh, yeah. It's like the great joy of my life. I feel like you'd be an intimidating presence in a book club. Not in my book club. Really? Yeah. No, my book club is full of people that I kind of idolize. I'm terrified of just because of how amazing and brilliant they are. I don't. Of course not. But like other writery, actory people, arty people. People from all kinds of. Um, different professions. There are some some writers. There's a historian, a judge, um, a publisher. Like it's a really interesting group of women who are all um, older than I am. And I kind of lobbied to get into it for quite a few <laughs> years before I was accepted. It was I just wore them down. Um, paid a fee. I paid a fee. <laughs> they finally just got tired, and so I got to join. Um, but just an amazing group of women to get to listen to talk. And and someone took me aside in the kitchen and just said. I'm going to tell you the background of this book and you're not going to want to make it, but I need you to know this is the background. It's not what actually happens in the book. The background is this series of assaults that took place over years and years. And I was like, I don't want to make that. And then she said, no, no, no. I said you were going to say that. But the book itself is about this amazing conversation that happens amongst this group of women who are elected to make a decision about whether or not to stay and fight, whether or not to leave, um, whether or not to stay and do nothing and how they might create a new colony or not. And it's this incredible debate and this amazing democratic exercise. And it's a pressure cooker. cooker. They only have 24 hours to decide before the men come back. Um, And by the end of this description, I was hooked. And I hadn't thought of directing in 10 or 11 years since I had kids. And I immediately ran out and got the book and just became obsessed by it. And so I found out that Frances McDormand and Dee Dee Gardner had the rights. I reached out to them, and the very same day, they reached out to me, which was thrilling. And what did they say? I just got this email forwarded from my manager, Frank, who's also Fran's manager, and it just said, um, women talking was the subject line, and it just said, what's Sarah Polly up to these days? And I had just sent him an email saying, do you know if they have a writer-director for this this book yet? Were you trepidatious about taking on a film at all? Like you said, like it had, been a, it had mm-hmm. been a while. Yeah, I had all kinds of fear around it. I um, have three little kids. I didn't really want to miss um, the amount of time that you miss when you make a film. Usually you miss them waking up and going to bed for months and months at a time. So that was a big fear, which was quickly resolved by Didi and Fran quickly agreeing to making shorter working hours so that um, none of us would have to miss that part of our lives completely during this shoot. I was also frightened because I'd had a head injury. I'd had a concussion that I suffered with on and off for three and a half years. Um, And I didn't actually know if I could direct a film again. Um, But I knew I desperately wanted to bring this story to the screen and it was worth a try. But there was a certain amount of fear in it for sure. When, When did you talk to Miriam first? I talked to Miriam as soon as I was hired and I asked to go out with her and just ask her every question I'd wanted to ask about the book, which is the most thrilling part about adaptation. Yeah. If you get to do it, I got to do that with Margaret Atwood as well as you just, 
every question you've ever had about a book you love to just get to sit with the author and ask it. Can you tell me anything you might have asked her? The biggest question I had that is my favorite question to ask now when I adopt is if there's one thing that is the most deeply important to you about the translation of this work of yours to the screen, what is it? And what's interesting is authors have an answer to that really quickly usually. And um, and Miriam's right away was the laughter, that these women have to laugh and it has to be funny. And that was really amazing guiding principle to have because there has to be an escape valve. There has to be a there has to be a release, I think, for so much of what you're made to feel in this film. The women need that. There's an intimacy that develops with these women when they're in um, community with each other and there are no men around and they're able to talk about this trauma and this harm, but also how to move forward. There's a joy that had to seep into the film. So whenever we could find a place for laughter, we did. And, and Miriam really helped us find that as a North Star. I think um, there's a misconception around women talking that it's this dour, sad film. There is so much joy. There is so much laughter in it. And that's such an important part of the film. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, pay attention for that. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Sarah Polly. We're talking about her brilliant film, Women Talking, which is about a group of women living in a cloistered religious community. And as I mentioned, after these devastating assaults, they have to decide whether they will fight, leave the community, or do nothing at all. Cloistered religious communities are such an interesting setting. Because as Sarah mentioned, not only are they a community who have grown up together, they're held together by faith. And that is an interesting and sort of a dangerous thing to depict in a film. So I asked Sarah what interested her about making a film about a cloistered religious community. Take a listen. Yeah, I mean, I have talked about this film as as a fable, and that's certainly how I envisioned it. I don't think it's what Miriam envisioned when she wrote the book. I think that's probably where the book and the film oh, diverge yeah. from each other a little bit. Um, for me, it is this kind of huge, sweeping fable, almost like an allegory. Um, I think for her, coming from a Mennonite community, um, it was much more like rooted in reality in some way. And it is based on a true story. I mean, like we have to yeah. remember this book was written in response to a real series of assaults that happened over years in a Mennonite community in Bolivia, the Manitoba colony. And this book is not about those assaults, but it's a response to them, a very hopeful response in a way, in terms of a way forward and, and a reckoning with harms and, and moving forward. Um, but yes, it was deeply important to, even though we don't say the word Mennonite in the film for a whole host of reasons, um, it was important you to don't. us to be really authentic. We don't ever say the word Mennonite in the film. Sarah, I, never, I never caught yeah. that. It's said in the book, um, I think, uh, first of all, my experiences with Mennonite communities have been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. I have Mennonite friends. Yeah. Um, I'm really drawn to the collectivity and selflessness in those communities, and I really wanted to represent that in the film as well as telling this story. Um, but I'm not Mennonite, mm. and me telling this story is different from Miriam telling this story in a certain mm. respect. So for me, it's more in the realm of a fable. But it was also really important to me that we be very authentic, the details of what these Mennonite communities are like in terms of design and wardrobe. And and we had Mennonite consultants at every step of the way. I think one of the reasons I don't use the word Mennonite also is I didn't want to give a secular audience permission 
to use the idea that this is happening in this already very misunderstood community. This could never happen here. Like, I want it to always feel closer than you think, because actually, this is about all of us. The questions this raises about what we've allowed to have happen, the harm that we've enabled, systemic injustice, hierarchical power structures that allow terrible things to take place, and violence against women. Um, it's Interesting having this conversation in the studio right now, but I mean, it I is, mean, it is, it is sort of the cloud hanging over the whole thing, don't you think? Let's you just know? say the thing. Yeah. yeah sure, so I do yeah. feel like um, that to me is what's most interesting and what's applicable to all of us in this room and everywhere. Um, and so I didn't want to give contemporary secular audience permission to say, actually, this is, you know, this is just something that happens in a cloistered, cloistered isolated religious community. I think the conditions can be more ripe for this kind of thing in a community like this, but it's we have um, these very difficult questions to face everywhere. You didn't want to other it, and mm-hmm. you didn't want people to get a break by going, oh, no, this is, I mean, uh-huh. that, that's what happens to the crowd who wear bonnets. Uh-huh. Yeah. You didn't want to give people an out exactly. to not yeah. be able to look in their backyards. Yeah, and also with this reaching this broad audience, and again, I am not Mennonite, Yeah. We're talking about a community of people who cannot, by its very nature, speak back. They're not going to write an op-ed. They're not going to go give interviews. They don't interact with the world, the contemporary world in that way. So you kind of have to measure how you're telling a story about a community that is not your own, knowing that it is not on this playing field. And so one of the things that was super important to me in the film was really honoring um, the faith and and pulling that apart from the hierarchical structures that have sprung up around that faith so that we really honor these women's faith and how they feel about it and what their version of being a Mennonite is. And we are saying that that is separate. And in fact, much of their conversation is parsing out how is that different from this toxic insidious structure that's built up around the religion. There's a line in the film, um, and I don't know if it's from the book. In fact, I read the book so recently that I said, I don't think it is. As she said, a religion based on love mm-hmm. is one of the things that I think Sheila McCarthy's character says. Mm-hmm. And I guess it made me think about as we try to rebuild our society in a more equal and in a more kind and a more just mm-hmm. way. It is funny to talk to you here, Sarah. <laughs> but I was also wondering, because you do strike me as someone who has a an anchor somewhere mm-hmm. of goodness. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what, what that anchor is for you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think, I mean, I go in and out of being sort of more interested in in actual religion uh, in different religions all the time. But I think that for me, the consistent thing is, is that I've seen people survive unbelievable things and come out. I mean, there's that, that, you know, this thing that runs throughout the mythology of the wounded healer. I've seen that so many times in my life of people who shouldn't be able to function because of the trauma they've experienced and are generous and good and helping others. Um, I've also seen people who've done terrible things be accountable and take responsibility um, and have a kind of self-inquiry that seems to me like the true hope in this world. I just don't think in my personal experience, and I don't speak for anyone but myself here, I don't think of anyone as a write-off. I think there is enormous possibility for people to change 
and shift and be affected by each other. Um, so I think that kind of guides yeah. every decision that I make. Not, not, not always easy to get to that place. No, and I think probably appropriate to feel grief and rage at times yeah. too. It's where, this is where I kind of am living right now though, is this sense that um, I think human beings are capable of so much more than we think we are. And um, we should have, I think we can have more faith in ourselves and in, in each other. Yeah. And I don't think, um, I'm certainly not speaking from a naive place of having never experienced trauma or been harmed, but I, I do, I just, I hold out hope and faith that um, everyone is due for a moment and hopefully has one in their life where they really recognize and are accountable for and um, commit to changing. I mean, it's such a beautiful way of thinking about forgiveness and hope. Not as this, as Sarah mentioned, naive thing, but as sort of a, a, a realistic approach to a better world. That's the first part of my conversation with Sarah Polly. We've been talking about her film, Women Talking. Coming up, Sarah will tell you how her own experience as a child actor weighed heavily on her when it came to casting her own kids in the film. I'm Tom Power. More Q after this. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You know, I made my speeches every day about if you're bored, you don't have to stay. And at some point, my oldest kid intervened and just said, everyone's having a good time. This is about your childhood. You need to relax. It's basically like summer camp. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let me give you some context for what you just heard there. Uh, you're in the middle of my conversation with the Canadian actor and filmmaker Sarah Pauly, who came in to talk about her film Women Talking, which, I mean, just a few weeks after we taped this conversation, won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Academy Awards. I remember I was in Edmonton, I think, and I remember rushing back to my hotel, watching her win, eating a banana and just like pumping my arms in the air. So Sarah, as I mentioned, was a child actor. She starred in uh, this really classic Canadian TV show called Road to Avonlea. And being a child actor is something that Sarah has spoken a lot about. She's talked about what that experience has taken from her over the years, how unsafe, how overworked, how traumatized she felt as a kid on set. So when it came time to make her film, I, I was hearing reports that she had developed this new way of making films in terms of like scheduling it so that people have a work-life balance, so that people could see their kids, and so that child actors were safe and could leave whenever they wanted. So I asked Sarah about how she approached having child actors on set um, and what it was like when some of those child actors were her own kids. Here's what she said. So I'm just basically uncomfortable with kids being on set, period. Right. I, I thought 
you know, in this film, it's necessary to have kids not as a major role. I would never make a film, I don't think, where a kid played a major role and had to make that time commitment. But it was necessary to have them in the background playing and give a sense of what these women were fighting for. I mean, they're ultimately in this conversation to fight for and protect and safeguard their children. Um, so uh, they had to be there. But I thought, OK, well, I'll just put literally all of my energy into making sure this is a good environment for them. So I didn't really direct them. We followed them around with a camera. We let them play. There was a speech made every day where I just said, if you get bored or uncomfortable at any time, if you just don't feel like being here anymore, you can walk out. We'll work around you. You're only allowed to be here if you're having fun. As soon as it stops being fun, there's no obligation to be here. Just tell me or your mom or whoever. Um, so it was pretty good as, par as far as working experiences went for kids. But what I realized in doing it was I can't, I can't control for what their home life is. Is like and what kind of pressure is on these kids that I can't see and what they're comfortable objecting to and not at such a young age. So I don't know that I will know if this was a positive experience for these kids until they're 40 and have had a bunch of therapy. And maybe they'll come out and say it was great. But I just I don't think you can know that. And I think it's um, unfair to expect a kid to be able to properly advocate for themselves. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you would know, right? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the premise. I did everything I could. Yeah. I think we were successful, but I just can't be assured of that. I, it was funny you mentioned that, like, you said something just then, like, I would never cast a kid in the lead role. I would yeah. never do it. Um, I had, have you had, had I got to uh, interview Jeanette McCurdy not that long okay, ago. Okay, yeah. Have you, have you met her yet? No, I haven't met her, but I've, I've seen interviews and stuff. And a really incredible book mm -hmm. she wrote called yeah. um, I'm Glad My Mom Died yeah. about her experience as a child actor. And she said to me, um, Tom, I'd never – she said, not only do I think there shouldn't be child actors at all, mm -hmm. like there should not be child actors at all, but I think we as a society need to reckon with why we want child actors mm -hmm. I think it's complicated. I mean, I've certainly held that position very strongly for long periods of time. That there shouldn't be so I get all. it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, what I will say is, yeah, and yes, we have made a decision as a society that kids will not work. Why on earth would film be the exception in terms of an industry? It makes no sense. Yeah. However, are we really going to see no films or TV shows without kids for the rest of our lives is the question that gets posed to me when I say that. And I'm sort of taking that in and going, okay, well, what can we do? Because actually, this isn't going to stop, even if we're railing against it. It's not going to stop. So what can we do to ensure it's better or safer? And I mean, I think that you should limit the amount that a kid can work in a year. I think there should be really strict rules around that. Yeah. I think there should be a third party that has nothing to do um, with the kid's family or the production. I think probably there should be an onset um, child psychologist at all times, anytime a kid is in a working environment who is assessing independently whether things are going okay or not for that kid. Because um, I don't think anybody else in that equation can be trusted. Um, so I think, I think, you know, working hours should be much shorter for them. And ultimately, I would just advise, you know, parents to say, no, like, let your kid have a childhood. They can work for the rest of their lives it doesn't have to be now. And there's no statistic that backs up the idea that being a child actor is a good predictor of a healthy, happy career later. I mean, it almost never happens. So I think that making sure people are really informed about the pitfalls of it are really important. And then also having tons of safeguards 
onset when it does happen. But yeah, of course, my instinct is the same as hers. There shouldn't be kids working at all. But I don't think in the absence of that yeah. being the reality, I'd like to see what we can do to make it better. When, when your, your kids were on set for this thing, I think mm-hmm. um, I should say, I think mainly because it was the pandemic and, it was, <laughs> you know, it was a good place for them to be, mm-hmm. you know, to be with you and, 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 and all that. Was that occasion to look at them? And, and I don't know how old they are, and, and nor do I expect you to tell me. But is that an occasion by which you look at them and go, hey, youngsters, uh-huh. when you when I was your age, I was doing this in a very different way or I was just or I was just doing this. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, my kids really wanted to come on set and they wanted to visit. And because of COVID rules, the only way someone could come on our set was if they were employed. That was a rule. And yeah. I couldn't have an exception just for me and not the rest of the crew. So they were also very interested in being background performers. So I amazingly relented on this, which nobody could believe, especially me. Um, that you let... Your, your- yeah. I mean, I just didn't understand why I was in this situation. Actually, our costume designer, Kita Alfred, who's amazing, was actually worked on wrote to Avonlea when I was a kid and she was as she was fitting my kids in these period costumes she was going are, are you are you sure this seems like actually the last thing you would want to have happen this is so surreal um but you know of course you know I made my speeches every day about if you're bored you don't have to stay and at some point my oldest kid intervened and just said everyone's having a good time this is about your childhood you need to relax. It's basically like summer camp here. Everyone, everyone's happy. Your, your oldest kid said, everyone's yeah. having a good time. This is about you. Yeah. No, he, she, uh, the exact words were of my oldest kid were, um, we know stop boring us with your childhood, which you need to, you need to absorb and take in. Can I laugh at that? Am I allowed to laugh <laughs> yeah, you're at allowed that? You're allowed to laugh at that. You're allowed to laugh at everything. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh Literally at everything. everything. <laughs> well, I don't know. But like, how was that for you when they, how was that for you? I mean, good in the sense that I realized, okay, we're not damaging anybody here. But also you realize, you you know, we're all lugging our baggage along with yeah, us. We and all? we got to be conscious of that as well. I think the least fun part of the experience of being on that set for those kids was me being neurotic about whether or not they should be there and worrying about their well-being, yeah. but at the same time, better than the alternative. So Yeah, and of course you would, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in the Miriam Taves book, August, the male school teacher is the, is the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, in your version, is it Ocha? Is that, is that her name? Mm-hmm. The um, 16-year-old daughter who has, uh, is speaking to a future child. Mm-hmm. Um, t- t- just talk to me a little bit about that decision. Yeah, so um, in the book... August, Ben Wishaw's character is the narrator and it works beautifully in the book. And I I love that Miriam gave him the narration. We're sort of reading the minutes that he's taking of these women's meeting. And it's so beautifully done in the book. And I assume that would work similarly in the film. I wrote it that way. We shot it that way. We recorded the voiceover. And then in the edit, it became clear that in the translation of this story to this different medium, um, not having the story told through the voice of one of the women who had been assaulted um, created this distance between us and the story. Um, and we were so taken by Kate Hallett, who plays Oche. She's um, an amazing 16-year-old uh, actress who is from Alberta, and this is her very first film. And we had been so taken with her throughout the rehearsal and the film and so wanted her to be more central. And so suddenly we started to imagine the voiceover being through Oche and and rewrote the narration for her and kind of reconstructed the film around the voice of the youngest. Where I come from, where your mother comes from, 
We didn't talk about our bodies. We hardly knew how to read or to write. But that day, we learned how to vote. That was an amazing experience, both to get to write that voiceover and also get to hear Kate's voice become central to the film. You nor Miriam depict the violence, the actual violence, mm-hmm. to the women in either the novel or the, or the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read this quote about you, and it said, you, you said, someone asked you about this, and you said, this movie is about refocusing ourselves on what we want to build and how to get there rather than what we want to destroy. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I wanted to, to see if we could get you to talk a little bit more about that, a little bit more mm-hmm. about sort of the, the allegorical nature of the, of the film. Sure. I mean, I think that we've done a lot of really important work of pointing out um, harms that have been done and developing a language around that. I'm developing a language around what sexual assault and what sexual harassment looks like. Um, I think um, that's been a lot of the conversation. It's been an important one. I think that we also need to now spend as much time thinking about what it is that we do want to see. And there is this line in the film that's from the book Um, where Rooney Mara's character says, Ona, she says, um, perhaps we need to talk about what what it is we want to build, not only what it is we want to destroy. And for me, um, the project of this film and and for me, the impact of the book was it gave me an off-ramp from grief and rage and into this sense of using our imaginations to imagine what a just and equitable world might look like and to meditate on what is good and what we could build. I think we're also this funny moment in this conversation where um, both the conversation itself is starting to stagnate and also we're in the middle of a tremendous blowback where people Mm. are just sick of it. They don't want to hear about equity anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've only been in the conversation for five minutes Mm -hmm. and people are done. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah, Like, okay, you had your moment. It's time to sit down and be quiet again. So it's a funny moment where I think there's tremendous possibility because there has been the beginning of this reckoning with the harm that's been done. And so I think it allows us an opportunity to now think about what next, what we want to build. But we're also in the middle of also um, just needing to kind of hold our ground as well and say, you know, this this conversation actually does have to continue because there's so much, so much work to be done. And while there may be some superficial shifts and changes, especially, you know, in the film industry for actors, female actors, in terms of the rest of the world, there's so far, there's so far that we still have to go. So it's a really beautiful film, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I, I hope you keep making them. I hope you keep making Thanks. films, you know. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I think yeah. I did see one quote with you. Where you were like, I don't know if I'll ever make another one after this, you know. But. Well, I think I just have to feel like something matters this much. I mean, I love writing and I, I write for a living when I'm not making films. And um, in terms of what it takes to actually make a film, I, I guess I just want to feel as urgent about it as I do about this one. And and I felt like what Miriam Taves does in this book, she's saying something that I hadn't heard said before. And so to get to be a part of, you know, translate that into another medium was was a huge opportunity that um, made it worthwhile to make a film. Well, um, we feel so much uh, admiration for you here. Thank you. And so much love for you here, Thank too. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you came in. I'm glad I came in, too. It's always nice. Postmodern and cathartic. <laughs> That's the tagline. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tagline. It's lovely to have you here. Thank really. you. That was my conversation with Sarah Polly talking about her film, Women Talking, an adaptation of Miriam Taves' novel. 
I remember when Kaylee Cardinal put out her breakout record in 2019. It was a little blues. It was a little R&B. It was kind of rootsy. It was called Stories from a Downtown Apartment. It was sad. It was about lost love. Well, you know that you had me from my first ring. Mm. When the wine made my cheeks flush hay. Crimson pink. I mean, really, right? So that's what Kaylee Cardinal sounded like when we first heard her. 2019. I want you to keep that sound in mind because, I mean, think things have changed. Kelly's a little different now, a little poppier, a little bit more uh, disco, but is still writing really honest songs about love and romance. And she has a new song out this summer. It's called Over Before It Began. If you've ever been in a one-sided romantic relationship... I'll say the songs for you. Kaylee Cardinal caught up with our friend and Q guest host, Talia Schlanger, to talk all about it. Take a listen. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. I see the very uh, distinct hotel bed background behind you. You're on tour right now. That's right. And I'm so sorry. I didn't even make the bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's our way. Well, this is the radio. You didn't have to make the bed. And That's you didn't, true. You didn't know That's that true. I'd be calling it on you, calling you out on it. But the, the, the point is to say that, you know, you're you're in this busy summer tour. And before your breakout, you had talked about playing a whole lot of pubs in the northern prairies. I want to know what the most valuable thing is you learned from playing in the pubs that you're taking out on the road with you. It was incredible training how it's so difficult to capture the attention of a a room full of incredibly inebriated people. So if you can make this room full of people pay attention to you, then when you're in a listening room, it just it just makes everything so much easier. So I feel like I I learned how to really work to see who's in front of me and and uh, and to figure out what it is that they wanted and to do that so that I would make them pay attention to me. Mm, amazing. And then you can scale it up now that you're playing these mm-hmm. these bigger spots. Um, you've released two new singles this year. And before we go deep into the latest one, I want to talk about how the how your sound has evolved. Some people would say that it's poppier. Uh, How would you say that your sound has evolved this year? Yeah, I would say it's definitely poppier. Um, Coming from like Northern Alberta, I feel like I, there was always sort of a a box of music that I felt like I, I, I wrote to because it was what everybody around me was sort of doing. And I've always listened to like all the music. I mean, I was obsessed with the Backstreet Boys and the Beastie Boys when I was in high school. So it's like, I love everything. And I've always wanted to do everything. And now that I'm older, I feel a little bit more bolder. And I feel like I can do whatever I want. So that's what's happening. Yeah, you can. We can also Mm. contain multitudes. Backstreet Boys and Beastie Boys can live live in one musical mind. That's right, truly. <laughs> you also talked about uh, Thelma Houston and, and Vogue and early Michael Jackson as, as influences on what you're doing now and on the song that we're going to hear. Why, why those influences? Um, I, I can't say exactly why. It just like, when I, when I started to write this song, these were just the pieces that I started to hear. They sort of just appeared to me. Thelma Houston, don't leave me this way. I need disco strings in this song, you know. Uh, don't stop till you get enough. It just, these were the things that just, I don't know, they just showed up and they were the ones that I plucked and merged for this song. And we're going to hear the song in just a moment, but I'm hoping that you can give us some insight before we hear it. You've said that the song is about 
unrequited love and also how that can relate to self-sabotage and feeling disconnected from your culture. That's not, uh, people don't always connect those dots in that way. So can you tell me how all those elements relate? Yeah. I mean, I grew up um, in Grand Prairie and I mean, great community, great people, but I was indigenous in a very white community, a white church. And I never felt like I really truly belonged. I never felt good enough. I never felt attractive. I think I was eight the first time that I thought I was fat. And I always wanted to be a singer from the time that I was like four years old, I started singing on stage. So I consumed uh, media, I consumed music, and I never saw anybody who looked like me. So I always thought that I needed to change myself in order to do this. So I like bleached my hair. I had blue contacts at one point. It didn't look good. It didn't look good at all. (laughs) But the thing is, is that I just, I had this shame, this internalized shame about who I was. And that led to making some, yeah, some terrible choices in loving people, people who it was almost like I had to work for it or try to convince them to love me. And that's how I could sort of heal those wounds if I did that. And it's just kind of led to this pattern that I've created that I'm trying to break right now. You know, it's always hard work and there's lots of therapy involved, but like, it's, it's that finding that, I don't know, that sense of worthiness within yourself that this song is about. Oh, wow. And when I think about the way that you've presented yourself in the video for, for this, um, it's such a confident presentation that I think sounds to me like a very far way to come from what you just described of not feeling comfortable in your skin. I mean, you're really, you're, you're glammed up and you just, you just look so confident and beautiful and confident though. Thank you. I mean, that's I, I certainly when I was uh, when I first started out singing um, in band with bands in bars, I was 19. And I one time wore like I had dreadlocks. I was one of those people, you know, uh, and I wore really, really baggy clothing. And I remember one time I wore like a three quarter length skirt and then a zip up shirt with a collar that had a three quarter length sleeve. And everybody was like, oh, Kaylee. <laughs> And I was like 20 and that was me dressing up wow. and like trying to be sexy. But now I like, now I, now I truly like have owned who I am and am so much more confident than I ever was. And yeah. And I do want to show that off. Yeah. How would you say that your feelings about love have changed since, you know, the song that we heard in the introduction from, from stories from a downtown apartment, which is very much a heartache, heartache album. Mm, yeah. And I think, I mean, certainly there's still heartache involved because that's just part of so many parts of who I am. Like I just, I love really deeply and I also fall out of love really quickly too. And that's kind of part of it for me, but oh. I mean, it leads to some great songs, but I, <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I'm loving in a different way now. I'm loving in a way that puts me first and not somebody else. And that changes, that's changed everything, everything. Mm. Would you mind introducing the song for us? Yes, this is Kaylee Cardinal, and this is my song, Over Before It Began. Everyone else can see it The way I start to shine When you come around I got one thing on my mind You will Frenzy got me so high 
the liner notes in front of me right now, but shout out to whoever playing uh, bass guitar on that track. What a jam. Brand new music from Kaylee Cardinal. The song is called Over Before It Began. If you'd like to see Kaylee perform that live, she'll be at the Bear Creek Folk Festival in Grand Prairie, Alberta, later this month. That is it for the show today. Uh, tomorrow on the show, Phoebe Bridgers is going to be here. Pretty exciting. Phoebe has an incredible ability to write songs that are heartbreakingly sad and kind of funny. She'll talk a little bit about her songwriting process. That's tomorrow on the show. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.